Amen. You may stand with me now. We're going to read the scriptures, Galatians chapter 3, and we're reading verses uh, 1 through 9, though our text and focus will be on verses 6 through 9, but we will read the larger surrounding set of verses. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Holy Father, we give thanks to you for the gospel of your grace, the gospel of your Son, our Lord Jesus, who has died for us, who has risen again to newness of life, that we might also die to sin and live to righteousness. We thank you for the grace that is revealed in your word and what is revealed here in Galatians. We ask, Spirit of God, that you would guide us as we look at this passage, that you would Open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things out of your word, that we would be built up in our holy faith. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm grateful to God for growing up in a Christian home. And for those of you that had that benefit, I hope you can relate to that. Thanks be to God for growing up in a a Christian home. It is a great blessing. There's a lot of things that you can receive in the context of a Christian home that you wouldn't otherwise as you grow up. Most important, of course, is the teaching of God's word uh, in terms of being in a Christian home. One of the other things that you may get if you grow up in a Christian home is children's Bible songs. These are ways in which we can teach our children and communicate what we believe in a very catchy, memorable way. Sometimes I remember learning those kids' Bible songs when I was young, and I look back at them now and I think that was catchy but not accurate, or maybe it it lacked some degree of accuracy. But there's other times where it was both catchy and very accurate, and sometimes even much more profound than I ever realized. And perhaps you remember the song, Father Abraham, and you recall all that went along with it. Uh, I I won't sing it for you or do anything else in that regard. But, but the, I want you to focus on the words and see how relevant they are for our passage. It says, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. 
And I look back at that and I realize when I was four or five years old, I didn't know why that was a good thing. Why, why did I want to be a, a son of Abraham? Why was that a thing to which I should praise the Lord for? Well, this passage in Galatians explains the song. So this is the commentary uh, that brings light to what that song is about. It shows to us why it is such a desirable thing to be a child of Abraham, which we will find out also means to be a child of God, to be one with Christ. It has all these other implications that we will unfold. Why would it be the case that any of us would want to be related to this man from thousands of years ago that came out of Ur of the Chaldees? Why is that important to us? We'll see it's very important. And so kids, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, children of Abraham receive many blessings. We're going to look at those blessings today. I hope that as we look at this passage, we'll come away with the sense of why the song ends, let's all praise the Lord, because we're going to look at the blessings, the privileges that come in the Christian life, the privileges that come from knowing Christ. I want you to come away with a sense of the greatness of God's blessings for us. And so we want to review where we have been in terms of this passage in Galatians 3, because Paul is following up on what he said. Last time we were in this passage, we looked at Paul's rebuke. He was rebuking the Galatians for their foolishness in receiving this false teaching that was so destructive. And he wanted them to remember the time at which the gospel had first come to them. He says, don't you remember when the gospel was preached? How did you receive the Spirit of God? And he says, is it something that you did? Was there some action that you took, some set of works that you did to receive this gift of the Spirit of God? And he says, of course, no, it was not by their doing that they received the Spirit of God. The gift of the Spirit was not premised upon their doing, it was premised upon their believing. It was that they had heard the truth of the gospel, preached through Paul and Barnabas and others perhaps. They had heard this truth and they had believed it. And God had done amazing things in the churches of Galatia. That's what we looked at last time was how God pours out his blessings of the spirit upon the church when we receive the word, when we believe it. Now when we go into this passage, Paul connects the experience of the Galatians and their receiving of the Spirit of God to Abraham and what Abraham did all those thousands of years ago. And so we need to think about what is the connection between the Galatians hearing the gospel thousands of years later and receiving it, and then Abraham all those thousands of years before hearing a promise from God and believing it. What's the connection? Paul uses the word just as at the beginning of verse 6. I'll read verses 5 through 6 together again. It says, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, for righteousness. And so as I said before, he's, he's reflecting on the work of the Spirit that had happened in Galatia. What were these things that happened? All different kinds of amazing works of God had taken place in the churches there. There had been, of course, the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers to know that they are children of God. 
There were miracles taking place in Galatia, it seems. He uses that that word here. There may have even been prophecy, possibly, in the churches of Galatia, just like as mentioned in 1 Corinthians. But the work of the Holy Spirit was a work of salvation. That That was primary. They were... They were receiving the message of the gospel and the Spirit was at work in the churches. And of course, we also know it brought forth other blessings like the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and patience and peace. These things were happening. Now, Paul connects that to Abraham all the way back to Genesis 15. And here is how I would paraphrase what Paul is getting at. He's meaning something like this. He says, just as you heard the word of God and believed and received the blessings, so also Abraham heard the word of God and believed and received the blessings. He was counted righteous before God. That's the point of connection for the churches of Galatia. And the reason Abraham is so important is, as you can imagine, for these false teachers, Abraham is their patron saint, Call him the patron patron saint of circumcision for the Judaizers. He was the guy to which circumcision had begun. The command was given to Abraham. And so he is the clincher argument. If you can show that Abraham was a man of faith who received the blessings of God, not because of what he had done, but because he had believed, so Paul can show that that is how the Galatians should think about the gospel as well. Abraham was, first of all, a man of faith. And as we will find out, Abraham was considered a righteous man, not because of his circumcision, not because of the rest of his life of faithfulness, which, as we will find out, was sometimes better, sometimes worse. Abraham believed God, and he was considered a righteous man. Now let's look at Genesis 15 again. This is the key passage, and we want to think about the trial, the test of faith that Abraham was going through at this time in his life and which continued for some time. Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer, Of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This was God's promise to Abram. Abram was at this time in his life childless still. He had already received a promise back in Genesis 12, which Paul also quotes from, that he says, in your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a lot of families to bless, especially when you don't have any children. And Abram had doubts at this time. If you were Abram, would you be potentially doubting at this time? You have this big promise. But it was not looking good for the fulfillment of the promise. If Abraham was looking around at his circumstances, he had every reason to doubt. 
His body was growing older. Sarah's body was growing older. Time was elapsing. Abraham's life was growing short. There wasn't much more time for this promise to happen. It seemed crazy enough for him to have one child. But it's even more difficult to believe that his descendants would bless all the nations of the earth. That's so far removed from his circumstances. And that is why it is an amazing thing that as Abraham is brought out into the night sky and, and God says, look at the stars, and he looks up and God says, you can't even begin to number these things and your descendants are going to be like that. That's an amazing, amazing promise. And Abraham believed in God at that point. Abraham was granted the gift of faith to believe a very big promise. You see how hard this is when it comes sometimes to the promises of God? We read promises in Scripture that are amazing promises. And we can balk at them in our unbelief. We can just say, I can't see it. There's just no way. I I can't even fathom such a promise coming to pass. Yet eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Far greater than we can even conceive. And this instant of Abraham believing God at a difficult moment despite all the circumstances is used by Paul both in Galatians but also in Romans chapter 4 and this is related to what I sent out in the worship email this passage in Romans 4 that speaks about the faith of Abraham giving glory to God and I want to read part of that passage Romans 4 18 through 22 who contrary to hope in hope believed So that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so what Paul is saying is, contrary to the circumstances, not looking at his own body, which was not a good body from which a child and many children would come, he says he did not waver in faith. He believed the promise of God, and this glorified God. And I've I've, I've thought about why did this glorify God? Why was faith such a God-glorifying thing at this moment? It was God-glorifying because when we hear the promises of God, when we believe them, it is us essentially saying God is true no matter what. That glorifies God, my friends, when we say God is true no matter what. No matter my circumstances, no matter how unlikely this seems to be, God's word is true. And and it's us regarding God as true above all other words, above our own thoughts, above the doubts of others and the opinions of others. We're saying God is true, though every man may be a liar. This glorifies God. And so this is important for us, brothers and sisters, in the life of faith that when we are confronted with big promises, amazing promises, desirable promises, that we do not waver in unbelief when we are confronted with them. However, this is not always easy, is it? It is rarely easy, I would say, when it comes to big promises and we begin to look at our circumstances. This is a test of our faith. 
Even though we may know it to be true in our minds, we come to a promise and we say, yes, I I know the word of God is true. I know I'm supposed to say that, but do I feel it right now? Do I sense it? Well, remember that faith is the conviction of things not seen. We don't see it yet. Now, even after Genesis 15, God tested Abraham many different times. You remember he was tested on Mount Moriah, uh, where Isaac, the promised son, through whom all the blessings to the nations was going to come and follow through with, was almost killed. God set up this scenario to test Abraham's faith. It was God determining to set up one of the most difficult scenarios you could envision. He had waited all these years for the promised child. The promised child had come. There had been joy. There had been laughter. And now God says, you need to kill him. That's, that's remarkable. That's, that's shocking to think that God would set up such a scenario. There's a reason that people come to Genesis 22 and the story of, of Isaac on the mountain. We think this is shocking that God would set up such a scenario. But what I want you to see from the example of Abraham, brothers and sisters, is that we ought not to be surprised when God challenges our faith, when he presses it and tests it. We've talked about this in different ways in terms of the trials that we experience. Now, if Abraham is one of the major prototypes of faith in the Bible, and if we study his whole life, what sort of things should we expect to see in our lives? I listed five things that we should expect to see. If we're just looking at Abraham's life and we're thinking, if this is the prototype of the faith-filled life, what, what, what should we see? Well, the first thing I listed that occurred to me was big promises and amazing blessings. That's one thing in the life of faith that we receive from the Word of God. Big promises, amazing blessings. That's what Abraham received. Secondly, we should also expect to experience difficult circumstances seemingly insurmountable challenges for those promises to be fulfilled. God can set it up this way. Big blessings, seemingly insurmountable circumstances to get to the blessings. Number three, we should expect tests of faith where it will become at times even more difficult to believe the promises. Those are the Mount Moriah moments where we are tempted to waver in unbelief because we're thinking this can't go together. These circumstances are not consistent. And yet Abraham, Hebrews 11 says, by faith believed that God was able to raise Isaac even from the dead. He, he was able to reason by faith that because God never lies, then somehow this is going to work. Somehow this will work out, and I guess it's going to have to be a resurrection. Then, number four, we will experience long periods of waiting for these promises to be fulfilled. We will face potential doubts. We will face setbacks. I think we will find setbacks at times where it's almost like we went backwards in terms of how close we were getting to the promises or how, th- how close we thought we were to the fulfillment of some particular promise. But number five is very important. Most importantly, we will see the truth of God's word vindicated. We will see the promises come to pass. Maybe some of them are in glory, some of them in this present life, depending on which promise we're talking about, but this, brothers and sisters, in summary, is the life of faith, and we ought not to be surprised by this pattern that takes place in our lives. 
Perhaps you find yourself somewhere in the middle of this process. You find yourself in the period of extreme testing. You've seen some promises come true, but there are many you're still waiting on, and it isn't looking like you're on the cusp of fulfillment yet. You're experiencing right now what we call living life in the middle. You're living by faith in the promises of God, which have not all come to pass yet. So this is what we need to see about Abraham's faith. He believed God, that word that he had been given, and he was considered righteous or justified in the sight of God. And therefore, Paul says, we too, to the Galatians, and for us, brothers and sisters, here at Reformation Church today, we are accounted righteous before God, not for anything that we have done, but only by receiving the promises of God and believing them. And especially those promises concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are central to the promises of all the things that we are to believe. We are justified when we believe these promises. And that's what Paul goes to next in Romans 4. After speaking of Abraham and his faith, he says in verse 23, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up our Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. When Paul says it was not written for Abraham's sake alone, he is telling us that when it comes to a passage like Genesis 15, each of us need to come to that promise and say, this is for me. This promise of Genesis 15, verse 6, is a promise for me. That if I believe the promises of God, I will be accounted righteous with God. Abraham did not do anything that night as he was standing up looking at the stars. He was looking at the stars and he believed God. And therefore, if we are to summarize what is saving faith, as demonstrated in this example from Genesis 15, I would summarize it this way. Saving faith is a believing response to whatever the Word of God says, especially concerning the truths about the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Those are central, but it's, it's a believing response to all of the Word of God. And kids, this is the second point in your notes. Those who have saving faith believe every word of the Bible. That's what you're going to see when somebody has saving faith granted to them by the Spirit of God. They're going to respond to the Word of God at every single point, and they're going to say, yes, this is true. I believe this. I will walk in this. In our confession of faith, it has a valuable summary of saving faith. It basically says something like this when it comes to what does saving faith look like? And I want to read to you just a portion of our confession. This is chapter 11, verse, or section 2. It says, by this faith, saving faith, a Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God himself speaking therein. And acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth. Yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God. For this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting Receiving and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. 
Now, if you were to take that definition for a moment and, and plug it back into what we're seeing in the life of Abraham, that's exactly how saving faith is evidenced. It, it believes, it says, whatsoever is revealed in the word of God. And it says it acts differently depending on what the word is saying. If the word is giving you a command, the believing response is to do the command, to follow through with it. If the passage is threatening and warning, it says that the believing response is to tremble at the word of God, to fear God. And if the passage promises something, then we take hold of that promise. We believe it, we pray in light of it, we live in light of it. And in all of this, centrally, we're looking to Jesus Christ as our hope. So that, brothers and sisters, is the faith of Abraham evidenced in Genesis 15. But now we need to look at this language of Abraham being accounted righteous. All Abraham did was believe the promise of God that night, and God considered him righteous. This is despite the fact that Abraham's own personal righteousness, like ours, is very little and certainly cannot stand up to the bar of God's holiness. There is no way, as we will find out in the verses that follow, that our righteousness can measure up to the standard of God's law. And so God, in his gracious graciousness to us, he receives our faith, not as a substitute of law-keeping, so to speak, but because faith is resting in the promises of God, and especially in the promises of God concerning Jesus. And here's how one commentator describes this language of reckoning righteousness. It says, when Abraham believed God, God reckoned that he was righteous. To put it in financial terms, he accounted him righteous. Trusting God was like opening a bank account. Immediately, God transferred righteousness into Abraham's account. We talk about that imputation, that language of imputation that means that this righteousness of another, the righteousness of Christ becomes wholly ours by faith. And how important this was for Abraham to be considered a righteous man. Think about the rest of his life. What else happened after this? Genesis 15. Abraham believes the word of God. He's accounted as righteous. What happens in Genesis 16? Abraham follows a badly concocted plan by Sarah to figure out how to fulfill this promise by means of the human flesh. She says, here's my maidservant. We don't have children of our own yet. Take her. We can have children by her. And Abraham goes along with it. Abraham, at that, to that degree, is acting in unbelief. And then we come to Genesis chapter 20. Abraham is in the land of Gerar, and, and there he's fearful. And he, he lies about Sarah. He says, she's my sister trying to protect his own skin. He's, he's fearful. He's not faith-filled at this point. Abraham lied to protect himself. And yet, he still, even though his faith is not perfect, even though there's times at which he does at times waver, he is still holding to the promise of God. And Abraham is still considered a righteous man before God. This is God's grace to believers. Abraham is an example of this. Though his faith was not absolutely perfect and his obedience certainly was not absolutely perfect, yet he is considered a righteous man because he's trusting in the promises of God. 
That is what we call that amazing truth of the imputation of righteousness. It becomes ours, and it, and it doesn't change. It's not constantly variable. It's something that we possess by faith. You remember in Genesis 15 that at that time, Abraham was in a very real sense an uncircumcised Gentile. He's certainly uncircumcised, and then people debate, is he a Gentile? Well, he had been called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He, in that sense, he's, a, he's, he's foreign, uh, so to speak. And, and that was a powerful argument for Paul to bring to the Galatians. He's saying, look at Abraham. He's, he's not circumcised. He hasn't done anything. But he's considered righteous before God as he trusts in the promise of God. And this is good news for us, that our, our righteousness is not our own. Because our lives are so up and down. Our our degrees of faith vary. Our obedience varies. We have good days where believing God feels a lot easier. We have hard days where believing God is an immense struggle for us. There are days in which our obedience is not very good. We, we, because of our perhaps unbelief, we start to disobey. We don't believe the promises of God. We walk contrary to them. And in those days, we must especially be grateful for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which covers us. And this is because even a weak faith can take hold of Jesus Christ. We stretch out our weak, trembling hands, and we can feel like we're barely able to grasp on, but we can still grasp on to Jesus. And we take hold of him, and we believe in him. And yes, some days you might have to say, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but barely, is kind of what you're saying. But that's okay. Because you're holding on to a very strong Savior. Here again, a children's song helps us. We are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And so, brothers and sisters, you are considered righteous before God when you by faith take hold of the promise, the promise of salvation through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God declares you righteous in his sight. And kids, this is the third point in your notes. God considers us completely, perfectly, and forever righteous when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. As as Romans 5 verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. We are made righteous by his obedience, by his death, in taking away our sins. And so this is what Paul sets before us. He wants us to know that our righteousness is not our own. Just as Abraham trusted in the promise of God, so we also must trust in the promise that had been delivered to them there back when Paul preached the gospel at first. And of course, we ourselves must receive this promise as well. And as I looked at for, for words to describe, what, what is it to be clothed in this righteousness that is not our own? I, I found that the words of the hymn, Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness, to be such a good description of this, this is a hymn written by Count Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravians back in the 1700s. And we will sing this together at the end of the message, but Count Zinzendorf was expressing the hope that this gives us, the confidence that this gives us. And he says, he says this, 
Jesus, your blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. With mid flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy I shall lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day. Who can say a word against me? Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. That's the boldness on which we stand on the great day as we have the righteousness of Christ. There's no hiding, there's no fear on the day of judgment because we stand in his righteousness, not our own. This is why the Bible in Acts 20 calls it the gospel of the grace of God. It is good news of grace because God's unmerited favor is bestowed upon sinners who don't deserve any of it. It is good news because our standing with God is not based upon the measure of our obedience, which can never measure up to God's righteous requirements. Imagine standing there in your own holiness, your own attained righteousness. It would be to build a house on shifting sand. You get to this beach and you... You get your wood, and you say, I'm going to build a house right here. It's going to stand. You start whacking those two-by-fours in, and, and then the floods come, and, and then it washes away. And then you start again, and you start building again, and then another flood comes, and it washes away. That's what it would be like to trust in your own righteousness before God. It's, it's, it's vain. It's futile. But to believe in God's promise of the gospel, to rest in Christ, is to have this house built on a firm foundation, that can stand on the day of judgment. When the fires come, you stand on that rock, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so as we reflect upon the love of God, the grace of God as revealed in this truth of Christ's righteousness becoming ours, we can certainly, I think, relate to what Paul says in Ephesians 1 when he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. We are the beloved children of God because we are in his beloved, the Son of God. And so this is a glorious thing that we have, brothers and sisters, in this passage. And as we we go on now, we consider the verses that follow, verses 7 through 8. Now Paul has shown that the true sons of Abraham are not those who receive some external sign because Abraham didn't receive, had not yet received some external sign when he was accounted righteous. Now Abraham, uh, Paul moves it back to the Galatians and the Gentiles and this question of the Gentiles. And this is a promise for us. So listen to verses 7 through 8. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. And so as we come to this passage now, Paul wants to show us that not only does Genesis 15 prove his argument, but now we're going to look at Genesis 12. We're going to look at the promise that God made for all the nations. What he is saying is really remarkable. He's saying that Abraham had the gospel preached to him back in Genesis 12. And you think, well, that's it's not very detailed gospel. It just says in your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Is that the gospel? Call it the gospel in seed form. 
I call it seed form because all the details of the gospel are not there in Genesis 12. You, you don't exactly know how the blessings are going to come. You don't know when the blessings are going to come. You don't know the name of the Messiah through whom the blessings are going to come. You don't know about the cross and the resurrection. It's not there in Genesis 12, is it? But it's like a seed that contains the gospel. Aren't seeds amazing things? in terms of how they work. My wife and I were talking about this the other day as we were, we were looking at, at, the, at the backyard with this giant, uh, I think it's a sunflower, my wife will have to clarify again because it doesn't look like one, but it's this giant plant and it had this tiny little seed and you think, how could that come from a seed? It's this tiny little package, it's, it's almost miraculous that God can pack so much into a seed. That's how you need to think about passages like Genesis 12 and other promises of the Old Testament. These are gospel seeds. And if you go back to them and you, you hold up the seed and you consider the fulfillment of that seed in the New Testament, you start to see, wow, there's, there's a lot here. The gospel is in this verse. And that's what you need to think when you look at Genesis chapter 12. In you, in your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that means that the the gospel that saves us is the same gospel that saved Abraham. The thing that Abraham believed was the promise of God. He's trusting that God is going to bring redemption through the promised Messiah. He knows somehow it's going to come through his seed, though he doesn't know how and he doesn't yet have a seed in Genesis 15. But he's trusting in that. And we also, we get to look back, we get a lot more, we have that amazing privilege, but we look at the same gospel. We are saved by the same promise in much fuller form. Now there's another remarkable thing in verse 8. You notice how it says this, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham. This is kind of strange if you think about it. How can the scripture, which if you're just thinking about it in its written format, that's what the, what the word scripture means, it's written things. Think of some scroll, it's, it's sitting on, on a desk, it is an inanimate object, how can it foresee something? Well, what this is telling us, obviously, is that the word of God is the same thing as the scripture, When it says the scripture foresaw, it's saying God foresaw and preached the gospel. The point then is that the scriptures are the very word of God. This is one of those passages that brings those things together very clearly for us, that if somebody wants to draw any sort of separation between the written scriptures and the word of God, you say, no, they're the same thing. This is the word of God. Every word is God-breathed. And children, this is the fourth point in your notes. The Bible is God's voice to the world. Whatever the Bible says, God says. And so this this whole matter of what Paul was arguing had already been settled back in Genesis 12. Isn't it amazing that uh, two two verses, Genesis 12 and then Genesis 15, settled the argument for the Galatian church if, if they really understood its implications? May we understand its implications as well. May we understand the remarkable blessings that are packed into these brief verses in the book of Genesis. And part of that promise we want to think about for a moment, the promise of Genesis 12 was a big promise. 
It was a promise that in this one guy, this one man from Ur of the Chaldees, through his descendants, every nation on earth would be touched with the blessings of God. That's an amazing thing to think about. And when you read the word nations, of course, we need to think about this a little bit differently. We hear the word nations and we think nation states. We think of modern day countries like Russia or Germany or the United States, these political entities. But the word for for nations back in the Old Testament here had much more of the sense of families and and tribes and, and people groups and ethnic people of all different ethnic backgrounds. That's the idea that is in view with this promise that all the different peoples of the earth that have been scattered abroad after the Tower of Babel, which is right before Genesis chapter 12, God is saying, I'm going to bless all of them. Even though I've dispersed them because of their rebellion, even though they're still defying me, I am going to bring my blessings to all the nations. This is, again, where a kid's song helps us. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. That's what the promise of Genesis 12 was pointing to, was that this big vision, this big missionary vision of the blessings reaching the farthest ends of the earth would happen through Abraham. And so it makes sense if you think about the situation the Galatians are in, you think about the situation we're in, we're amongst the nations, aren't we? We are the, these, these far-flung peoples, far, far away from, and most of us anyway, or do not have a Jewish background. And, and so this is a promise for us. Consider what God has done for us, brothers and sisters. He has brought his blessings to us. Here we stand, here we sit, hearing the preaching of the gospel. Now, in verse 9, Paul concludes our passage with his basic point, that those who are of faith are blessed. He says in verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And so this was the obvious conclusion that they should have reached as they looked at Abraham's faith, as they looked at the promise of Genesis 12, that of course it makes sense that the, the gospel comes to the nations and the Gentiles receive it and they're justified in God's sight. That's how it worked with Abraham, so it works that way with everybody else who hears the gospel. But I want to narrow in here as we, as we get towards the end of this passage on the word blessed. It says those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And as you know, especially if you've grown up in a church context, the word bless is one of the most used words in all of Christian vocabulary, isn't it? I would say, I think I'm on solid grounds here to say that if there's ever a word that could be used as a filler word in prayer, it's the word bless. You know, we, sometimes when we don't know what else to say or what else to ask for, we just say, bless this person. I'm not saying that every time somebody says that in prayer that they're not thinking or they don't mean it, but my point is that when it comes to a word that is so common, it's as if we sometimes lose track in our minds as to what it actually means. It is such a rich word and yet such a, a used word. And so we need to get a grasp of what to be blessed means. He says we're blessed with believing Abraham when we receive the, the gospel by faith. And so we don't want this to be a trite word. We want it to be a meaningful term for us. And so this brings us to the 
point five for the children's notes. Uh, Number five, a spiritual blessing is any gift God gives to sinners who don't deserve anything. Blessings only come through Jesus. So let's dig into this word. What does it mean to be blessed? I want your heart to be thrilled when you hear that you're blessed with believing Abraham. I don't want that to be like a ho-hum, yeah, blessings, I've heard that a lot. It's not how we want to respond to such an amazing promise. I think one of the most helpful locations in the Bible, amongst others, to understand what it means to be blessed by God is perhaps the very words that God gave to Aaron, which he was supposed to use to bless the people of Israel. This is the benediction that we sometimes say at the end of our services. It's in Numbers chapter 6. And this was God's command. God designed these words, and he says, you're going to bless my people. That was actually one of the jobs of the priests in the Old Testament. If you look at the summaries of what they were supposed to do, one of the things they were appointed to do was bless God's people. God had appointed blessers, so to speak. Now, the blessing came through God, but the, the priests were to pronounce it and to remind the people of God about it. This was the promise that God wanted to have applied to his people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. So the Lord himself gives definition to what this blessing is. He gives different pictures and examples of what it means to be blessed as the people of God. And if I were to summarize a few of those, one of them is that God keeps us. This is safety and preservation. The Lord bless you and keep you. God promises to preserve his people, to, to protect them. One of the promises is that God shines his face upon us. This is a, a favor that he shows. He, he, he points his face towards you and he shows favor upon you. Even though you don't deserve any favor, he gives it to you. God is gracious to us. He treats us in a way we don't deserve. And then it says that he gives us peace. That's one of those really big words that certainly includes a degree of physical peace and safety, but it includes a peace of conscience, it includes a peace of mind that God blesses us with. And so if we look at this blessing of this benediction and you bring it all together, in summary we could say all of them relate to our relationship with the living God. It is to be in right relationship with the God of the universe, to be blessed. Though we are hell-deserving sinners, God treats us as righteous in his sight and then pours out blessings upon us. Whereas in our fallen condition, apart from God's grace, we would be enemies of God, the Bible says, but, and that's not a state of peace, is it? It's not where we want to be. That's hostility. God removes the hostility, and he says, I am at peace with you through Christ. And we're his children. All the blessings of being children come to us. He's our our good and loving heavenly father. You can go to another place like Psalm 103 if you want to look at the blessings of God. You know, the psalmist, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then he starts to rattle off all the blessings. He says, This is the God who forgives all my sins, the God who heals all my diseases, who redeems my life from destruction, who crowns my life with his tender mercies. He pours out good thing after good thing after good thing upon me. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not punish us according to our iniquities. The mercy of God is from everlasting upon everlasting to those who fear him and keep his commandments. And so as you look at that word, as you read verse 9 and you hear, if I believe, I am blessed with the believing Abraham. I want you to know what that means. I want you to receive it, to value those blessings. And so, brothers and sisters, as we, as we conclude, we, we see, I think, in retrospect, having looked at this passage, what it means to have Abraham as our father. To have Abraham as your father means you believe in the gospel promise concerning the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And to be a son or a daughter of Abraham is to be a very blessed person. If you have believed in this promise, then you are the one who has experienced blessing above blessing. You You have received the grace of God. You are one who is redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, who is the seed that blesses all the nations, and you've done nothing to deserve such a gift. That's why the song concluded with, let's all praise the Lord, because that was exactly the right response to reflecting upon this amazing gift of being a son of Abraham, which is just another way of saying, I am a son of God. I am a child of God. So brothers and sisters, have you received the word? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ, through whom these blessings come? Are you convinced that he is the only one that can save you from your sins? Do you know that there is no other path to blessing in this life but through the blessing that comes through Jesus Christ? May it be so, brothers and sisters, and we will pray that we will receive the word with joy, uh, with faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that by faith we experience the same blessings Abraham experienced when he believed your word. We thank you that this comes to us not by our imperfect and inconstant obedience, but through the gift of faith which you give us. We see the importance of faith believing your word no matter the circumstances, no matter how big the promises, and we ask for a strengthening of faith in our congregation, we, we sense our weakness in the times of testing. Uh, we sense at times we could start to waver in fear. But we desire to be steadfast. So please, Lord, enable us to receive the promises, to hold fast to them, to continue to pray in light of them, and then to wait for them. I pray that you'd also enable us to see what it means to be blessed to know this in a spiritual and experiential way, your love for us, and be able to see your blessings and to count them and to reflect upon them. We ask that you would enable us to receive this word today, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.